Welcome to the Frankly Judaic Podcast, a production of the Gene and Samuel Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. I'm Jeffrey Weidlinger, the director of the center. This podcast explores some of the newest research being conducted at the University of Michigan in Judaic Studies. And here's your host, Jeremy Shear. It's a common story, one you may have heard from your grandparents or even great-grandparents. And it goes something like this. Back around the waning days of the 19th and the early days of the 20th century, when tens of thousands of Jews from Eastern Europe were immigrating to the United States every year, upon arrival they would crowd into buildings on Ellis Island, where, after stating their foreign-sounding Jewish names, immigration officials would summarily change them to sound more American. And so Rosenberg became Rosen, Muscovitz became Musk, and so on. But there's just one problem with these stories. According to Kirsten Vermeglish, a professor of history and Jewish studies at Michigan State University and a fellow at the Frankel Institute for Advanced Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan, these stories are probably not true. I would say that most genealogists and immigration historians who've done any work on this say that it's just not true. There's really not very much evidence at all that Ellis Island officials did this kind of changing. Instead, Vermeglish says, Jews who changed their names when they came to the United States probably did so for the most part voluntarily, either unofficially or officially through the courts. Vermeglish's research focuses on Jews who went to the trouble of officially changing their names. Because, she says, the names we're given and the names we choose say a lot about how identities take shape. In particular, in sort of who defines who's Jewish and who gets to define and what, what does it mean to be Jewish if you're not attending services or if you're not a member of an organization, what is it that makes you Jewish? Um, and so names seems like it's always been a, a sort of an interesting category, a way of defining Jews, and yet so many people don't have Jewish names. And so it's always seemed like a great sort of way to look at kind of the edges and the outskirts of who Jews are and a way of kind of defining them differently. For Meglish's study of Jewish name changing in the United States begins during and after World War I, when, she says, significant numbers of Jews began officially changing their names for a variety of reasons. Um, the war probably encourages a certain amount of nationalism, a certain amount of um, sort of insistence that people be 100% American. World War I is also seen as the moment um, where identification processes, sort of the state's concern with what your name is, becomes greater. The international passport system is developed as we know it, where, you know, governments have the ability to control your access to a passport and therefore your access to visas and your access to travel. So a number of things come together to make World War One sort of an initial space where name change petitions in civil court go up substantially. It's important to note, Vermeglers says, that by the 1930s and 40s, Jewish name change petitioners are largely second generation, the sons and daughters of immigrant parents born and raised in the United States and who speak English fluently. Their desire to shed their distinctively Jewish-sounding family names, Vermeglers says, was motivated by pervasive anti-Semitism that kept middle-class Jews from advancing higher up the socioeconomic ladder. Take colleges, for example. Beginning in 1917, Columbia University um, had been matriculating too many Jews, so Columbia was anxious that they would be becoming known as a Jewish school. And they introduced what became, what still is, the modern application form, a multi-page set of questions. 
Questions, Vermeglis says, designed to identify and weed out Jewish applicants, even if they'd change their names. What does your father do? Uh, you know, what's your mother's maiden name? What's your father's name? Has anyone in your family changed their name? Harvard soon followed suit, as did many top colleges and universities around the country. Businesses, too, developed strategies for ferreting out Jews and denying them employment. You could clip out of the journal, you know, this, you know, a standard application form that would ask questions about your name, your background, your father's background, your father's occupation, you know, of your mother's birthplace, all these kinds of your mother's maiden names. And they were all designed to be able to sort of fit your workplace with the particular kinds of ethnic people you wanted for these jobs. And so, to try to blend in and not be marked as Jewish, increasing numbers of Jews during and after World War I petitioned to officially change their names, following particular trends and patterns. There is a pattern of sort of just lopping off part of the name, right? So, Rose is Rosenberg or Rosenstein or, you know, any of the Rosen names, right? Um, Burke, spelled B-E-R-K or B-E-R-K-E is almost always Berkowitz or Berkman or something like that, because the English spelling would be B-U-R-K-E. And, but a lot of people leave in that E as kind of the tell, which I find interesting. People will always keep the same initial, even if they choose a sort of more Anglified, you know, Englishy name. You know, they go from Cohen, let's say, to Kent, right? They're keeping that kind of, that sound, right? Um, and then they are frequently choosing names that are not noticeable. They want names that are unmarked. It's during and immediately after World War II, Vermeglis says, when Jewish name change petitions hit their apex, partly due to the United States' heightened interest in names, especially concerning war-related job applications and military service. If you want to work at a defense plant, you want to enlist in the military, there is more concern that your name match your birth certificate. And this is a phenomenon that's going on concomitantly. Um, for major employers, particularly associated with the war, begin to demand that your name match your birth certificate. So there's a major bureaucratic push to change names officially because of the war. Plus, Vermeglis says, anti-Semitism became more prevalent during the war, not only in Nazi-occupied Europe, but also in the United States. You see a turn to violent anti-Semitism in the 1930s with the rise of um, Nazism, you know, even making inroads in the United States. Um, you certainly see more rumors about Jews, more um, sentiment that the Jews are trying to get us into the war, um, and then once we're in the war, that the Jews are not pulling their, their share during the war, that they're profiting from the war. All these kinds of, um, you know, sort of classic stereotypes about Jews that come out during the war, but are made even more anxiety-filled by, by the Nazis, right, by the Holocaust, by sort of the prevalence of anti-Semitic rhetoric and anti-Semitic propaganda that has been unleashed by the Nazi regime. Official Jewish name-changing slowly began to taper off soon after the war, around 1948. Still, the numbers of Jews changing their names in court were significantly higher than during the World War I era. The numbers would not regress to World War I numbers until the 1980s, a discovery that surprised Vermeglish, and one, she says, that complicates the picture of Jewish life in the United States during the 1950s and later. It was 
not my expectation at all. Um, and I absolutely do think that it makes us reevaluate our understanding of the 50s as this kind of golden age for American Jews. So I don't know that people are necessarily not getting jobs in the 50s, but I do think that people are still tremendously anxious in the 1950s. Um, they are working with more non-Jews in the 1950s. They are entering into more both employment and educational opportunities with non-Jews, and they are feeling anxious, right? I'm a doctor. I want to have a name that nurses will be able to pronounce that will not throw my patients off. Perhaps not surprisingly, name changing was controversial in the Jewish community and a cause of much consternation and internal debate. There's absolutely a sense within the Jewish community um, that this is a that this is an effort to reject the community. Um, and especially after World War II, you see sort of this heightened anxiety within the Jewish community. You see rabbis writing about this. You see Jewish communal leaders. You see fiction writers. Um, Gentlemen's Agreement, the famous book and, and movie, you know, the only anti-Semite in, in that movie that they show, that they pay attention to, is a Jewish woman who changed her name. I'll write all the letters on blank stationery and send two to each address. One of them I want to sign Skylar Green and the other Philip Greenberg. See what I mean? Yes, sir. And have the replies sent to my home address. I'll give you that later. Yes, sir. Of course, you know that it will be yes to the Greens and no to the Greenbergs. Sure, but I want it for the record. Now, if your name was... Saul Green or Irving or something like that, you wouldn't have to go to all this bother. I changed mine, did you? Wales? Oh, Green's always been my name. What's yours? Wilowski. Estelle Wilowski. And I just couldn't take it. About applications, I mean. So, one day I wrote the same firm two letters. Same as you're doing now. I sent the Elaine Wales one after they'd said there were no openings to my first one. I got the job all right. While a small number of Jews who changed their names also converted to Christianity or otherwise rejected their Jewish identity, for most Jews, for Maglish says, name-changing did not signal a disavowal of Jewishness. To a large extent, I mean, the, the majority of the people that I'm looking at are just ordinary men and women and children. They are looking to sort of cover this kind of uncomfortable, embarrassing name that kind of pops up in all the wrong places and immediately signals to people who they are, right? Um, it doesn't, you know, just changing that name doesn't mean they can't be members of synagogues, and they frequently are. An article published in Commentary magazine in the late 1940s featured 25 Jews who had changed their names. And the writer, from Eglis says, was clearly surprised to learn that his subjects had not abandoned their Jewishness and connection to the Jewish community. Every single one of them, all 25 of them, plus wives, were all insistent they were still you know, members of their synagogue, presidents of their synagogue, you know, deeply involved in the Jewish community. You can look at a whole host of sort of um, published materials at this time, and you can see that, you know, for the most part, you know, Jews are staying Jews, and this is just kind of a, a way of, you know, working in, a, in a, an environment that's mixed with both Jews and non-Jews, and not being embarrassed, not being uncomfortable, not having to always deal with the fact that you have this Jewish name. It's a cover, it's, but it's not, it's not a hiding, it's not, they're not, they're not denying it, they're just not coming out with it. They don't want it to be the first thing that everybody knows about them. Jewish name-changing finally petered out by the 1980s. And in the ensuing decades, we begin to see other naming trends emerge that signal greater comfort among American Jews. For example, Jewish parents choosing modern Israeli or biblical names for their children. So I do think absolutely that Jews become more comfortable. Jews become more confident with their Jewish, with, with being Jewish, with being marked as Jewish. 
by the same token, having said this, um, you know, the names that people are choosing are names that are not the names that were the most frequently stigmatized as Jewish names in the middle of the 20th century. Those names are not being revived. And by the same token, sort of the embarrassing, you know, Jewish names, and these were Jewish names that Jewish immigrants chose for their children, searching for the most English names they could find. Stanley and Milton and Sheldon and Irving. Nobody's reviving those names. And I'd be really curious to see if those names get revived. The only place you see them revived is like the nerds on the Big Bang Theory. In the end, Fermegler says, the history of Jewish name changing illuminates an important element of the Jewish American experience during the 20th century, helping to complicate the picture and shed light on the private thoughts, hopes, fears and aspirations of ordinary Jews. In part, it's just important because we do all have these name-changing stories. We do all have these connections to our names. I think it's so important for us to understand that these things that we see as so personal and so private have a public face. They have a communal face, they have a public face, and they have a history. I think it's important to take the stories that you get from your family and understand you know, probably the love with which, you know, people sort of thought, you know, this was a name changed Ellis Island, either that it's a name changed over the course of immigration or that people changed their name because they were embarrassed or ashamed of it because they were living in a moment where those names could, tar- could make you a target, right? Could, could mean that you'd lose out on something. I think it's important for us to sort of regroup and remember how important that was and not to sort of shame people who've changed their names, but to understand sort of the larger context in which they're doing so. Thanks for listening to the Frankly Judaic podcast, a production of the Gene and Samuel Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan.